Hear the word of God from Revelation chapter 19 and 20. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, 
and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. So good morning again, church family. I can't believe we're actually getting towards the end of our series in the book of Revelation. We actually have only two more sermons left, that's not including today, uh, left in the series. There's only two more Sundays, not including today, left in the whole series in the book of Revelation. Our next two sermons will actually lead us into our Advent series. So half our Advent series is actually going to be from the book of Revelation. And that's actually very intentional, because what is the end of the book of Revelation about? It's about the second coming and the renewing of all things by Jesus. So it works out perfectly that we're going to finish out the book of Revelation with our two Advent, first two Sundays of Advent, tying into the, the eager anticipation that we, what, what, what Advent celebrates is that we celebrate the fact that Jesus came and that he is coming again. And so we just love how that perfectly worked out together to bring in the close of the book of Revelation with our start of our Advent series. And that's going to be finishing up our series in Revelation the next two Sundays. And in the new year, get pumped for it, because we're going to start a brand new series in the books of Joshua and Judges. Right? So hopefully you're really pumped about Joshua and Judges. Some of the coolest stories in the Bible are found. You got a guy with a jawbone taking down a bunch of people. You know, a dude with some long hair tearing down pillars. We got some, all sorts of good stuff happening in those books. You got trumpets tearing down walls. It's all good stuff. So Joshua and Judges are going to be happening in the new year. And for those of you who don't know this, this is how we preach through our series in, at the, in this church, is that we try to go through the whole Bible. We want to preach through every book of the Bible. We haven't planned to do so. And so we like to often go Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. So we're finishing out the book of Revelation. Now we're going to Judges and Joshua um, in, the, in the start of the new year. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Hope you guys are gleaning so much out of this series. I want to show you this quick image on the screen real quick. And I saw this image on Facebook some time ago, and it always stuck with me. A really cool image of a, a huge humpback whale jumping in the sky. What you can't see clearly in this picture is that the people are all actually staring off to the right, not actually looking at the whale. Right? It's because during the, when this picture was taken, everybody on the boat said, look, look, there's whales to the right. So they all went to the right of the boat to look at the whale that they might have seen on the right side, and they missed actually seeing this massive whale jump. And all they heard was it actually landing, and then they all looked to the left. And everybody behind them in the other boats were like, you missed it! And they were yelling at them that they missed out the whales. And these whale watchers could spend thousands of dollars just to get a glimpse of these whales. And every eye was looking to the right, and then this big, massive whale landed to the left. And they heard the sound of the whale when it landed, but they were all looking in the wrong direction. And they missed this massive jump by this humpback whale, literally feet from the boat. Now you, can take this, you can take that image down now, but often throughout the book of Revelation, we can make the same mistake that the whale watchers did. We can get distracted or pulled into looking in the wrong direction. And let me shout this out to you very clearly. The book of Revelation is not primarily about a possible rapture or a thousand-year reign or a period of tribulation. No. It is first and primarily about Jesus. 
It's about the lion who became a lamb. It's about the one worthy to open the scroll. It's about the one who is enthroned to rule forever. He's the white rider. And I hope you see throughout our time in this book that this is what you've seen. Yes, we've covered judgment. We've covered wrath. We've, covered, we've seen the forces of evil clash. We've seen the divine drama displayed before us. But ultimately, it is a book about Jesus conquering and his bride being presented. If anything, I feel like the book of Revelation could be likened to a wedding website. Here's what I mean by that. Right? You guys are like, wedding website? What are you talking about? You know when you guys get engaged and people get engaged, they get all excited and they start planning all this stuff and all this stuff happens and they like, oh, it's time to put together the website. And so they put this website together where they say, oh, this is how we met and here are our friends and here's how he proposed and this is all awesome and here's how we can go for the, here's where the wedding's going to be at and here's the hotel information. That's what the book of Revelation is. It's a story of, of how they met, of how God was redeeming the earth, this beautiful love story. It's a story of redemption, of proposal, of pursuit. And it's a story of how the celebration is actually going to happen. It's going to happen. The wedding feast of the Lamb is going to happen. Right? Do you guys see how where it went with that? You guys like that? Is that okay? Yeah? I'm okay with it. I like it. From now on, I'm going to say the book of Revelation is like a wedding website. That's just what I'm going to go with. It's my, it'll be my thing. So let's look at chapter 19, verses 11 on. And just for a moment, I want to make sure we focus clearly in the right direction. What is the purpose of this book? Okay, so let's focus together. It says, verse 11, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. Now, I love this image right away of a, of a white horse, right? Because I think about, in my mind, because I'm a nerd, we all acknowledge this already. I think of the white horse and the rider and Lord of the Rings, and that's just what I think of. I think of shadow facts, and yeah, okay. But a horse was a symbol of power and of conquest, right? Those who had the most horses would typically win the battle, right? And so a horse was a symbol of power and conquest. This is a symbol of a, a pure conquest of power. And that's the focus of this book. As part of any book, this is the focus of the book. It's It's... It's, it's not the church, it's not the world, as wicked. it's not the devil and his malice, it's not even the remaining thousand years. The focus of our text this morning and the book of Revelation as a whole is the work and person of Jesus Christ, who's called faithful and true. And all, after all, Revelation chapter one, one verse literally says the book of Revelation is, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what we have in this text that we had before us, that David read for us, is two perspectives on the same event. It's as if two reporters were dispatched to the front lines and they had kind of they had their own perspective of how these events played out, right? And it looks at these two things happening, the victory of Christ the King and the victory of Christ's kingdom, the church. So the two things I want you to see, these two perspectives, is that one focuses on, one news, news reporter's focus is on, oh, this is the victory of Christ, he's the king. Another news or news reporters like, no, this is the focus is on the victory of the church, Christ's bride. And here's what happens. The victory of Christ the King. Looking at verses, chapter 19, 11 through 21, the first six verses start with this incredible, extraordinary description of Jesus. John doesn't rush into this treatment of what Jesus is doing. He doesn't immediately go into, this is, he came in with a white horse and he slew everybody, trampled over this, trampled over that. Instead, he starts off with this beautiful lingering and description of who Jesus is, the majestic, victorious king. 
He dwells on each component of the vision as though to savor each detail. For John, it was more important than understanding what Jesus is doing is knowing Jesus himself. That knowing of Jesus was more important than knowing what he was about to do. Everything else seemed to flow from this. My people, can I just say as an aside, true comfort and consolation for a suffering church to whom John was writing to is rooted in this. There's no important, nothing more important for us to do, especially in dark times that we often live in. There's nothing more important for us, not to question, the question shouldn't be, what is Jesus doing in this time? It's who is Jesus? Focusing on what he's about to do, God, what is the purpose of this? How does it all fit in the plan? Sometimes that helps, but more importantly, the thing that helps us more in difficult and dark times is just stopping and focusing on, Jesus, who are you? Is he good? Is he loving? Is he full of grace? Does he care? Is he powerful? And when you focus on that, can I tell you that true consolation, you may never know the exact reasons why certain things happen, but if you know the character of Jesus and you can trust in that, true consolation from your heart for your heart can exist. And that's what John seems to be lingering on here. He's lingering on, guys, before Jesus does anything else, when we see the white rider appear, let me just tell you, this is who Jesus is. Let's linger on that. And everything else, let it flow from his character. Look how John describes him. The faithful and true witness, he's called. Faithful and true. That's to say he's, he's true, he's perfectly just, he's able, he's a good judge, he's reliable, he's trustworthy, he's sound. His eyes, it said, are like blazing fire. Again, this is John, how John saw Jesus back in chapter 1, verse 14. Eyes like flames of fire. And the idea there is that a multiple, it's one that could be, you can see the light in his eyes. By his eyes, we can see that he, has, he burns with passion, but you can also see that maybe that he also sees. Sees you perfectly, penetrates your masks. Nothing is hidden from him. He looks with perfect purity upon all before him. Now, some of us, that scares us to death, right? Some of us, we don't want, honestly, we're scared of ever being truly seen. At the same time, don't we also long to be truly seen? Guys, we live in this kind of weird tension point, right? So many of us in this kind of world that we live in is so many of us, we want to be known, we want to be seen, but we're so used to wearing masks and putting up fronts because we're so scared that if we're truly seen, if we're truly known, that um, you, we wouldn't be liked or loved, right? And so here, here's this, and here's Jesus being shown as somebody, you know, he sees, he sees perfectly, he sees through your mask, he sees through your acts, he sees, he sees through everything that you put on, the way you try to act tougher than you really are, the way you act smarter than you really are, the way you do all this kind of stuff to be seen as better, but sees you for who you really are, but here's the cool thing, he still radically loves his eyes are, when I say, in my mind, when I picture blazing with fire, I, I picture passion as well as being able to see. I see eyes that are full of love. So he sees through your mass, but also burns with love for you. It says he's crowned. He wears, 
He's full of crowds. Back in chapter 12, verse 3, in chapter 13, verse 1, it says, the great dragon, the picture of Satan himself and the beast, they're wearing many crowns as well. But they're counterfeit kings in this world. They're counterfeit kings that they set up to say, here, here are my crowns. Here are the crowns that maybe I've put on myself, I've earned myself. But Jesus, John is saying, is the only true and rightful king of kings and lord of lords. And every crown is his. And I love this. If you remember back in chapter 4, it says the 24 elders fell before the throne of God and they cast their crowns before the Lord, worshiping him, saying, worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive honor and glory and power. It's an image of, a powerful image of believers surrendering themselves to the lordship of God. Here's the difference, guys. You see this, right? Is that the, the beast, they, they, they build up, they overpower, they, they, they create their own crowns and have a counterfeit God. But here's Jesus before the 24 living beings, the 24 elders, and they lay their crowns and they cast them upon the Jesus because he conquered by dying. See, there's a counterfeit that Satan and the beast try to bring forth as what true power is. But Jesus showed by the crowns that he wears what true power is and the way he earned them. And I love this, that he wears your crown on his head. When we acknowledge him and we call him Lord of our lives, we actually, one of the crowns that he wears is our crown that he set aside for us and we place upon him. It says here that Jesus has a name that no one knows. No one knows. I don't know exactly what that means. It's not like Bob. You know, I don't think it's like, I don't know why I thought that. But it's not like, oh, my secret name is Bob. I think what it really means to say is that he showed us so much of himself. Jesus showed us who he is through scripture. He's revealed, he's given everything of who he is to us. But there's so much more to know about him. I think this is what he's trying to say here in the scripture, this image, is that he has a secret name that no one else does. Literally, what he's trying to say to you is, is that we can spend all of eternity long learning more and more about Jesus and every single moment of eternity is well spent. That we can spend eternity long learning more about Jesus and they'll still be just barely diving to the depths of who he is. What it's literally saying is Jesus is so good and his character is so big and so eternal and so incredible that every moment eternally we can spend that he's sufficient for all times, for all moments, that our mind will never be satisfied or never not be satisfied in who Jesus is. Does that make sense? He has a name that only he knows and it will be our great joy to explore the facets of his majesty and dignity and glory and beauty and worth for all ages long and for all of eternity that awaits us. How incredible is that? You know, those romantic moments, you know, those sweet times that you talk to your husband or wife and you can say something like, I can spend eternity looking into your eyes or those kind of things. That's kind of, that's kind of what's going on here, right? It's, it's just kind of like, oh, I can look at you forever. I can stay like this forever, right? I think of that Aerosmith, I could lie away. Just, oh, just. And that's what it is. It's, just, it's, it's this beautiful image of saying, man, his name, we don't even... He's so much beyond us, and it's so good. It says, a robe dipped in blood. <clears throat> One commentator, Daryl Johnson, says, there's blood on his robe before he comes to the final battle. His robe is stained before he comes to the final battle. The question is, whose blood is it? From the whole book of Revelation, says Johnson, and from the whole of the New Testament, there's only one answer. The blood on his robe is his own. 
His robe, both the priest's robes and the king's robe, is stained with his own blood. The great truth we must never lose sight of is that Jesus Christ conquers and reigns not because he will win a battle yet to be fought, but because he has already triumphed by the blood of the cross. He has shed his own blood. He's already triumphant. Do you guys hear that? I was always wondering what that meant, like dipped in blood. I just love that interpretation because that's what the book of Revelation, all the New Testament literally is talking about is what blood is he already dipped in? He hasn't fought the final battle according to this image yet. But he's literally... His robe is dipped in his own blood. The only blood that is able to conquer and be triumphant. Why do you say, remember it says, who is worthy? No one is, no, is no one worthy. The, the heavens are weeping. There's no one worthy. There's no one worthy. But all of a sudden, no, the lion from the tribe of Judah, he's worthy. Why was he worthy? Because he purchased a ransom. He ransomed many to him. He was worthy because he sacrificed. He is worthy because he shed his blood. That's what made him worthy. And so he rules. And he's called, John says, the word of God. That's how John identifies him. If you remember in the prologue to his gospel, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's Jesus Christ. That's who comes riding into the battlefield of human history. The word, the one who reveals God, who is God, who makes all things. Who can stand against him? He reigns. And verse 15 says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. The sword of his mouth, the word of the gospel conquers the world. The word, the sword of his mouth, the word of the God conquers the world and, and the rod of iron with which he shall rule the nations is a reference to Psalm 2 where it says the Lord God establishes his son on Zion, his holy hill to triumph over the rebellious nations. No matter what political party is in power, no matter what nation we live in, no matter what petty powers of this world try to establish, there's only one truth that will remain forever. Jesus rules. He's enthroned. And kingdoms and nations can come and go. Empires can rise and they can crumble. But Jesus will always remain enthroned. And as ruler of all, John says that he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, will be the agent of the execution of the fury and the wrath of God. Upon his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Remember the one who conquers by the means of the cross, whose robes are stained with his own blood, who rides forth, is riding forth even in judgment and equity. Guys, there's that beautiful, weird tension that we have a hard time grasping. See, we hear all the time about a God of justice, a God of wrath, a God of, who will bring judgment. And guys, we need that. We need a God of justice. Because if there was no God of justice, then there is no justice for us to know and for us to understand. No, no, by means of which to understand that slavery is wrong and genocide is wrong. We need a God of justice, but we also see in contrast, we feel like in contrast, we see a God of love and mercy. And sometimes in our human minds, and our weakness, we can't kind of like put them together, right? We try. 
Right? We're like, okay, so then, or maybe we focus on one side completely over there, whatever it benefits us, right? So I'm like, ooh, I, I'm really good today, and I do a lot of good things, I'm really good at following rules, I'm all about a God of justice, because he less like me. Or me, actually my whole reality for myself, like, I'm all about a God of grace, because I mess up all the time, and I need God to tell me how much, how awesome I am. And sometimes we have these separate views of God, and we almost keep them separate, and we struggle, and we don't know how to kind of like fit them together because our minds are like, ah. Guys, can I just tell you this straightforward, up front to you right now? God is both. He's a just, just God. He will bring forth justice. He enacts justice. He is just. But we have a loving, gracious, merciful God. And sometimes it feels like that shouldn't exist together, but it does beautifully in this dynamic called the Trinity that God has created and given and shown us. And we see it over and over again as when we look at the cross and see what the cross is all about and we look at the redemption story and the divine drama that's played out and this beautiful kingdom that he's establishing. We see how it dwells and lives in beautiful tension together. God is both just and merciful. He is both righteous and gracious. And it's okay that sometimes we're like, I don't know how to put that together. We just need to trust that he's both. Amen? And we move on to the end of the beast. If you look at the effect of Jesus' riding forth, we see that there's kind of these two suppers that are in this chapter, chapter 19 one of which every single person in history is invited to. Either you attend the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is actually found earlier in verses 6 through 10, uh, um, when we're in the beginning of chapter 19, or you attend the great supper of God in verses 17 through 21, although the names are kind of off-putting. The great supper of God is not a good thing. Okay, let me say that again. You attend the marriage feast of the Lamb, which is, yay, good thing, or the great supper of God, which is, boo, bad thing. Okay, we just, if that makes it a little simpler. The first is a picture of heavenly celebration. The second is a kind of a gory image of utter defeat and utter condemnation. The birds of the air invite to gorge themselves in the corpses of the defeated army. It's a picture of utter devastation. The army is identified for us in verse 9. It's the beast and the kings of the earth with the armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Now understand that this is not a, a picture of a single final confrontation. This is actually is a perpetual state of satanic powers of rebellion and sin. This is the world in which we live in right now, taking up battle lines against the Lord and his anointed. The final battle for which they ready themselves, you see the final battle for which they ready themselves is never actually fought. The text simply says when the battle lines are drawn, Jesus rides forth on his white horse and that he rules. Do you get that? That Jesus automatically, there's no actual battle, right? He actually just rides forth, battle lines are drawn, then he rides forth. It doesn't say there was a battle, literally it just says Jesus wins. Right, do you get that? Jesus wins, that's the message. There is no final battle. The world powers of sin and rebellion, the false religions that deceives and lies to the nation, all are dispatched to hell because the word of God, the rider with the word coming out of his mouth, the sword conquers and slays. At the conclusion of history, when Christ appears in glory, no matter how fierce or how terrible the, the beasts and the nations are, Christ, the warrior king, speaks and judgment falls. 
And we turn to chapter 20, we see the victory of the church, Christ's kingdom. This passage unfolds in basically four scenes. Um, first one is, has the angel who holds the keys to the bottomless pit and a great chain that binds the dragon, Satan himself, for a thousand years, throwing him into this bottomless pit. Now, there's a lot of talk of what that thousand years means. A lot of uh, interpretations, a lot of people interpreting thousand years differently. If you want to learn more about this, listen to our podcast. A little plug for the podcast. Right? We talk about this, thousand years, the millennia. People, if you might have heard that people talk about post-mill, pre-mill, a-mill. That's what they're talking about. They're talking about the thousand-year reign. Okay? If you want to learn a lot more about this, you can check out our podcast. How long ago was that, Danny? About five or six weeks ago, we published the podcast. You can go on the website. You can go on SoundCloud, any of the podcast stuff. And you can actually listen to one of the episodes. And this is where we talk about it. I don't have time to dive into all the nuances of it, but we talk a lot more about it on the podcast. So you're welcome to check that out. It's, it's unpacking and understanding the book of Revelation. But here's the deal. Here's the problem that I believe. I think people, when they get obsessed, is trying to identify and understand this they get into this problem of looking on the wrong side of the boat. You guys know what I'm talking about? They get into like, what does a thousand years mean? Um, does Gog and Magog, is that, is that nation states? And what's, what is, what's going on here? And they look at the wrong side of the boat for the whale and they completely miss this beautiful whale jumping over here. I don't want you that to be us people. Don't miss the whale and for, for all the little possibilities of little sightings here. Little rabbit trails. Don't get me wrong, study it, learn it, do whatever you feel called to. I love, the more you learn, I'm always happy with the more knowledge you have. But don't miss out the jump, don't miss the beautiful image of the jumping whale here for the side stuff. Does that make sense? We're on the same page with me? Now I love here in chapter 20, Satan is bound. And I believe he's not bound at the end of history as some people believe. I believe he's bound rather at the cross. Colossians 2.15 says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities, putting them to open shame, triumphing, triumphing over them in the cross. Satan fell from heaven like lightning during the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, according to Luke 10. Jesus came to bind the strong man in Mark 3.27. He could say the work that he was doing now, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and when I am lifted up from the earth, will drop all people to myself, John chapter 12. That's the same message John is seeing here in his vision. Satan is bound and cast down. His power to deceive the nations is curtailed for a thousand years. Now, uh, one commentator likes to say, Revelation is not interested in statistics, but symbols. In other, in other words, all the other numbers that we've used so far have symbolic meaning behind them. And this number is no different. The thousand years represents the whole period between Christ's first and final coming. It's a symbol of the church age viewed from the vantage point of the church triumphant in heaven, reigning with Christ and participating in his victory. And John is saying to us, because Jesus has been lifted up, he draws all people to himself from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. And what an encouragement these verses ought to be. See, the devil would like to do two great things. The devil would like to do two things, I think, for us. I think he would love it if he can convince us to think he doesn't exist, or he can tries to convince us that he's not terribly, uh, he's much more worse and terrible and scary than he actually is. Does that make sense? There's two things the devil wants to do, two strategies, two main strategies. One, he wants you to think he's not real. Apart from that, then he wants you to think he's the big, bad, scary dude. 
He wants you to fear him. When in actuality, he's not free. He's chained and he is bound and he's imprisoned. He's a chained, leashed animal. And then Christ is triumphant over him. He cannot stop, thwart, or hinder the advancement of the cause of Jesus Christ in this world. And that's what John is trying to write in this this beautiful vision is to his people who are experiencing the persecution of the mighty Roman Empire. Remember the beast. They're receiving the persecution of the beast. And what, what John is saying to them is that, no, no, he's chained up. Jesus' death chained him up. So they may seem seem like a mighty bark. He's a leashed animal. Do you hear that? In the next scene, John wants to see the truth about ourselves as Christians to drive this encouragement home even further. At the end of verse four, he speaks about those who suffer for the sacred Christ as having come to life. This, he says, is the first resurrection. Now notice carefully what he says to his original readers about that. Do you see what he says? He says, blessed and holy is the one who shares, notice the present tense, the one who shares right now in the first resurrection. Over such the second death, hell itself has no power. This is a blessing John wants his first hearers and he wants us to enjoy right away as we hear the message of this book. The first resurrection is not a reference to some kind of physical resurrection of believers at the end of the millennia or the political kingdom or millennium kingdom. Just as the first thousand years is symbolic as the whole church age, so the first resurrection is is spiritual in nature. It's the new birth, it's regeneration. It's literally talking about salvation for us as believers. Because the second death is the one that he says we get to avoid. In John chapter 5, verses 24, 25, truly, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come to judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of, of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Those who trust in Jesus, who hears the word of his gospel and believe in him, do not bend the knee to the beast, they truly live. And we reign. They reign with Christ. John wants to see that living, we reign with Christ. Those who come to life in verses four to get in verse six reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now granted, it doesn't always feel like the suffering Christ church on earth feels like we're reigning, does it? But whom believers who are in this part, who've, who've experienced the joy of relationship with Christ, who are called from death to life, we're actually reigning in his kingdom age now. Here's what I mean by that, guys. Can I just be real with you guys? In this kingdom age right now, we're able to reign with Christ because what's actually happening is we've been given authority and power to advance his kingdom, to see his kingdom move upon this earth. And every good thing that we experience is because of that beautiful reign, the the beautiful power that Jesus has given us. Here's what I mean by that. Picture this, that you have this ability, this gift now, to see people who don't know, people who are walking in death, who are sleepwalking, who, who are dead, come to life. You have the words of God in you. You have the spirit of God within you that can share the truth of God and that can shape this world. It is something more incredible. Is that not reigning in power? Does that make sense? Are you with me so far? 
Think about what you have. Think about the power at your disposal right now. Right now, the spirit in you, the words of God alive, the spirit, the word of God before you, you have the power to speak it, to share power with it. You have the power to shape the world by the way you live and are stewards over this world. Right now, you have the power to advance his kingdom and to move it forward. Do you get that power? Do you see what we're talking about? That is very means. That's what we're. That's what we're doing. We're reigning in this age. Yes, there is suffering. Yes, there is difficulty. Yes, there are issues. Guys, there's so much pain in this world, but there's also so much good. With every moment, with every breath, a person that becomes a Christian, with every disciple that is made, with every moment that we share, reshaping the world, bringing forth justice. As every time that we fight for justice, every time that we fight for what is right in this world, we are reshaping, reforming, and working alongside Christ in recreating this world. Do you get the power that is? Why do we take that for granted? Why do we think we're defeated? Such power has been given and bestowed, such responsibility and duty has been given to us to steward that. We are reigning right now alongside our king. As missionaries penetrate yet another unreached people group with the good news, and as churches are planted in communities, in neglected communities, as sinners are plucked from Satan's hands, as we see the war over and over again the gospel advance in this world, we see it how modest Christians can go about living their lives with gentleness and joy, testifying to the redeeming love of Jesus. That is our reigning with Christ. And we get to be a part of that. Now, I remember John is, who John is writing to. Suffering church under the rule of a brutal, brutal Roman dictatorship. They were miserable, and it was miserable to be followed Jesus in that day. The church was bleeding and dying, and John himself was exiled for the sake of the gospel. Our political troubles and our cultural pressures right now in America are light and almost insignificant compared to the difficulties they endured. To them, John says, first, Satan is bound. He's a leashed dog. Don't believe his lies. The gospel will triumph. Go on and preach and be bold and see what Christ will do. Then he says, you're alive. Blessed are those who share in the first resurrection. You're alive. And then thirdly, he says, you will reign with Jesus till the end of the age. Yes, the world makes you slaves and martyrs, but you are really kings and queens. Every act of service, every word of witness, all of it extends the reign of King Jesus. And one day, you're going to see that clearly when you take your seat with him in glory. And so, struggling, tired, and weary believer, do not grow weary in doing good. Do not think it's worthless. But continue to reap the harvest, continue to plant, and continue to reshape this world. What power you've been given. I'm going to skip a little bit here for the sake of time. And I'm going to go to a little bit, skip ahead here, and go to the books opened. If you look at verses 11 through 15, here is history at its end. A solemn picture as creation flees from Christ's victorious presence in verse 11. 
And everyone who has ever lived assembles for final judgment. The great, it says from the verse 12, great and smaller there. Verse 13, the sea and death and Hades give up the dead. That is there is no exception, no excuses. Every single person is there. And the books are open. There's two books, it might say, maybe the book of deeds and the book of life. God has a complete record of our lives written down and he's the names of everyone who believes in Jesus recorded. Everyone is judged. And it says, verse 12, by what is written in the books according to what they had done. Now I want you to say, no one escapes from this judgment. Verse 15 says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown and cast away. Guys, I want you to hear this. The book of deeds that is recorded condemns us. Our deeds, our life is written in this book of deeds. And if you look at our life, so many of us, most of us, all of us, cannot say with certainty that, oh, I've lived a good life, I've lived a perfect life, I've lived a righteous life. We know and we can see and we can relate with Scripture when it says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we have no hope in this world. We have no hope in and of ourselves because here that's the problem. That's been our problem from the very beginning is we put our hope in ourselves to be God. But thank God in his goodness, he has another book. He has a book called the Book of Life. And the names that are recorded in this book are the ones who accepted, who called upon the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior. The ones who said, I have nothing I can do in and of myself, I give it all to you. The one who can look before the righteous judge, the source of all that is good, of beauty and of righteousness, and with confidence can say, I can stand before you not because of anything that I did good in this book of deeds, but because my name is written in the book of life through the work of what Jesus Christ has done. My people, I'm gonna say it to you very simply, very, very simply. At the end of days, when it comes down to it, guys, when it comes down to that time, we need to be found in the book of life. It's a simple thing. It's a simple statement, I know. But where's your confidence found? Do you find your confidence still from the book of deeds? Where you say, well, I might have earned a little more. I've done pretty good things. I've lived a good life. I gave away more than I took. Or I contributed more to this earth than I took away from it. Or can your confidence be found that says, no, my righteousness is not enough. But Jesus, who sees with eyes of fire, has seen through all my mass, has seen to the heart of me, knows my circumstance, loves me, chose me. I confess him as my only means of salvation, as my only righteousness, as my only hope. And so I'm found in this book. He's placed me there. And that's where I belong. I know for me, when I stand before my judge and good, good father, my confidence comes from the work of Jesus and not my own, not my own merit, not my own cuteness. I don't know why I said cuteness. <laughs> I was thinking of Hudson. I was like, Hudson, Hudson, when he feels bad for doing something, he goes, 
but I'm so sorry, Appa. And it's so cute. And he says, he's so sorry. And I'm like, fine, I can't yell at you. But then, then, then I thought about that. I'm like, no, it doesn't work that way. Because I can still yell at him. It's found, that, it's found because of the work of Jesus. And that's my hope. And that's my confidence. My people, please, this is what I beseech you. Will you call upon the name of Jesus? Will you make sure that your confidence is not found in yourself, but it's found in him? For those who call upon the name of the Lord, our confidence comes from the fact that Jesus is victorious and his church is victorious. We see this beautiful drama played out in, this, in chapter 19 and 20 of the book of Revelation. We see the reality of our circumstances, that Satan is cast down, that the white rider rules and he reigns. And for a thousand years, that's what we're doing, is we're moving and we're reigning and we're shaping this earth. And in the day final, the day of final finality comes, when the last day of judgment comes, when Jesus comes again, our confidence comes from the fact that Jesus called us by name, rescued us, and we put our hope fully in him. May that be all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, may we not miss Jesus. God, may we not be so busy or distracted by all the things that can call us to look to the right or to the left, but instead, may you focus our eyes fully on who Jesus is. May we see his beauty. May we see his worth, his goodness, his grace, his majesty. God, today, God, may this message, may all of what we've done done this morning may just be a a huge light that shines upon the name of Jesus because, God, you are our hope. Jesus is our hope. You're our righteousness. God, it's so easy for us to be distracted. God, may we just lift high the name of Jesus in this place. May we see that this book, this beautiful book of revelation that you've given us, God, that's what this book is doing. It's showing Jesus enthroned, Jesus reigning, Jesus victorious. And that is comfort to his people. May it bring us comfort. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.